Well, it's great to see uh, so many of you here today. Uh, things are filling up. Uh, you took my, you heeded my advice last Sunday, and so you were all able to be here on time today. That's uh, wonderful. Some of the snowbirds are returning. It's always good to see too. Welcome back. We've missed you. It's good to be back again together this morning, worshiping God. Uh, I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3 this morning. We'll be looking at 12 through 4, 1 this, this morning. <clears throat> it gives me a lot of uh, pleasure this morning to, to let you know that uh, my entire family is here with worshiping with Carol and I this morning. We don't have a particularly large family, but would you please welcome them? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they just love that when I do that to them. <laughs> but what they don't know is how much they love, uh, how much I love that they're here. So, anyways, let's uh, get into the word this morning. Uh, you've probably found it by now. The Philippian church that Paul wrote this letter to was a generally healthy church. They had some issues. Paul was aware of that, and he was trying to address that. One of those things that he was trying to address was false teaching that was slipping in either from outside or even from within the, the church itself. And if you remember, as we've been going through the book of Philippians so far, there's, a, there's been a real uh, flow to this thing. There's, a, there's a, a direction and a focus of Paul's words to the Philippian church. And he starts with his typical greeting, and then he gives thanksgiving and prayer. And after that, he, he wants the Philippians to know that despite his imprisonment, he encourages them that he's fine, he's living for the Lord, he's pressing forward, he's, he's advancing, the gospel is advancing, despite the fact of his imprisonment in Rome. And uh, as Christ, he get, offers Christ as an example of, of, of his humility and his uh, is going to the cross. And, and then out of that, Paul urges the believers that they should take on uh, uh, this mantle of humility and servanthood and unity and be shining as lights into the, a dark world. And uh, they were uh, to be following Christ's example, be living like Christ. And, and then he, he talked about uh, a couple of people that uh, were particularly, uh, exe who exemplified what he was talking about. And he talked about Epaphroditus and about Timothy. And then Paul also uh, stresses that, uh, the right, that having the right standing with God did not come as a result of his own works or the works of Timothy or Epaphroditus or anyone else, but it was solely came upon the finished work and the righteousness of Christ that was imputed to him. And in fact, Paul's great uh, wish for his own life is that only he would get to know Christ even better every day of his life, be it in prison. That is what we come to now. That is the, what has come before the text that we are reading this morning, starting in verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. By the way, I gotta stop here. Often when, when the New Testament writers talk about brothers, uh, we could take it very literally 
at referring to only men. Th th that is, uh, uh, there should be a more broadness in our understanding. Very often when he says brethren or brothers, he would include all, all of the, the believers that he was writing to. So he says, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think, otherwise God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in the shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we wait a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you and we pray that uh, such a powerful uh, message as we have just read here will be become not only powerful in our own lives, but it will, be, it will uh, bring truth deeply embedded into our soul, that we would be people that truly take on this, what Paul is talking about, and that we're going to discuss this morning, I, and those things that are maybe complicated or hard to understand, I pray that we will be able to make our way through that. Yes. And now, Lord, on a totally separate matter, Lord, this morning, uh, we pray for the coronavirus that is uh, making its way around the world. We pray, Lord, that uh, we would be uh, spared from death and uh, that our country would be safe. But, Lord, equally we pray for those lands and those places where that is not the truth, where there has been already considerable deaths. We pray that this would not uh, become a pandemic although many would feel it is already. But we just pray, Lord, that it could be stopped, that it would be managed, and we trust that it will be. And we could count on you, Lord, to do what man can't do. And in your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. I've noticed something, and I'm sure you have too, that sometimes when we are studying the Bible, we find out that it's sort of hard to figure out uh, what God is saying. And I'll, I'll, uh, this is one of the ways in which I think that happens. We sometimes read something over here in the Bible, then we read over here something in the Bible, and the two on the surface don't seem like they're saying the same thing. It's like they were writing from a different songbook. They're, they're, they're just different. It, it, it seems to be in conflict almost. 
And, and, and that makes it hard for us to understand what God is trying to say. Now, if it's confusing for us, can you imagine what it must have been for the, the, these young churches that Paul was establishing, uh, and, uh, and Philippi being one of them? Uh, they did not have the New Testament to check when someone would write a letter or someone would come in as a visitor and preach a sermon. Uh, they didn't have the resource of the New Test Testament to uh, compare to. They did have the Old Testament, of course. But <clears throat> sometimes these preachers were coming from different places and they were allowed to speak in their congregations. And often they, what they said it meant to be a Christ follower would be in conflict with either what the Apostle Paul had taught them or what some other person would come along and say. And so it became rather confusing for them. Uh, look at, uh, 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 for example, at the whole idea of spiritual growth. How do you grow spiritually? We have on the church a sort of a general understanding about how that's supposed to work. One of those things is, of course, you, you repent of your sin and by faith receive Jesus Christ as your Lord. And then uh, upon that, then you start uh, reading your Bible every day and you pray uh, a lot and uh, you start attending church faithfully and, uh, and, and, and it goes on from there. We have certain this idea about how spiritual growth is supposed to happen. But friends, uh, we all know people, don't we, that have done all of those things and are doing all of those things and they're not growing spiritually. Don't we? I think if we were honest, we'd all agree. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I may even be like that myself. Or I know someone that, man, it, that seems a little bit, um, that's not seemingly adequate to address the whole idea of spiritual growth. One of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians was to clear up some confusion that had come up in the Philippian church. Some of the issues we are going to talk about this morning are actually still a little confusing for us to understand, and, uh, and particularly as it pertains to uh, spiritual growth and where we see ourselves in our spiritual walk and in, in our maturity level as Christians. In the opening verses of uh, Philippians 3, Paul had already uh, discussed and covered uh, one of the controversies that most of the time we don't have in the church these days. That is whether we are obligated as Christians to obey the Old Testament law, and particularly regarding circumcision. Paul was pretty clear about that, wasn't he? That our acceptance from God or with God doesn't depend on our human efforts. It depends on what Christ has done for us. If you go down to verse 9, of, of chapter uh, 3 and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith Paul makes it quite clear that that is the way it works now but it's hard to figure out uh, what Paul uh, what pa part Paul plays and what part, uh, what part God plays and what part we play in that whole idea of growing spiritually. Uh, because uh, how do we reconcile Paul's other teaching on this subject earlier, in the, even in this 
same letter in chapter 2 and verse 12 where he says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now we've got two teachings that seemed at odds with each other. Remember I said sometimes it's hard to figure out what God is trying to say? That's one of those times when you figure, try to figure out what's going on. How do we trust Christ to do it all and then work it out in our lives at the same time? What does God do and what do we do? Or what does God do and what are we required to do? This isn't really just an academic question. It's pretty important that we know how we can grow and that we understand our responsibilities as followers of Christ. Once we start that journey, what is our part in following Jesus? Paul helps us to answer this question in this text this morning. Before he does that, he wants to clear up a couple of mistakes that people may have already committed uh, amongst his readers from Philippi. One of the mistakes that he addresses is this, the question of spiritual pride. See, the first mistake has to do with what he had just previously been talking about, that our righteousness is an imputed righteousness. It is not a righteousness that we work for or achieve. It is something God does for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And Paul was afraid that some people might read that and conclude that uh, trust uh, in Christ and giving up all for him as he had said he was doing and, and experiences this mighty power and, and suffering and all that, that Paul would, was fearful that they would conclude and get the impression that Paul had already arrived, that he had already hit the pinnacle of spiritual maturity. And, and he, he was concerned about them thinking that. And that's why he, was read, he, he continues to deal with it in these verses. Uh, you see, this idea that we've already arrived spiritually is an impediment to our, spirit, our further spiritual growth, isn't it? Soon as we think we know everything, then we don't pursue knowledge anymore. And that is what Paul was concerned about. Uh, he was concerned that some people might conclude that this was all a work of God and that there was nothing needed to be done on a par our part in order to continue that journey of discipleship and growth. And, and they had concluded that they already were completely mature. Paul writes in 12 to 14, now that I have, not that I have already obtained this or am I, see, he's immediately jumping in, hold it. If that's the conclusion you came to, I want to correct you. He says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The, brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own. One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It appears by these words that Paul is writing here that there were people who may have misunderstood 
what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. They thought they had arrived spiritually. Some may have thought that once you become a Christian, that's all there is to it. There's nothing else that's required. There's, there's no discipleship needed, nothing. It's just, I've done it. The transaction is complete. It's over, done, perfect. Perhaps they reacted to the Judaizers that we've discussed already in this uh, book by saying, well, we've arrived. We don't have to worry about your talk about the Old Testament law. We're spiritual enough. We already have all these spiritual blessings and we're mature and uh, we have all we need, all the maturity we need. We don't need to hear anything about Old Testament law. Paul wanted to, be con to clear up this confusion by stating that he himself had not yet arrived spiritually. That's a humble attitude to have. Now, if Paul could say that he had not yet arrived spiritually, what hope would there then be for his readers to conclude about themselves that they, were, they had hit the pinnacle and had need of nothing more? It would have been a sort of odd, foolish kind of conclusion to draw. But we sometimes make that mistake today. Sometimes we emphasize entering into the relationship with Jesus Christ so much that we stop there. Aha, I'm in. I'm, in, I'm inside the door. I, I'm, I, I, I'm in that relationship now. I, what all has been promised is available to me. I now have it. And then they just stop there. We emphasize the moment so much that we forget the entire growth process that follows after it. That's what Paul's talking about. There's a real danger of us falling into this error. There are some people who give the impression that they think they're spiritually mature, they don't need to grow anymore, and that's deadly. And it's called spiritual pride. I was part of a church where it's... Uh, so, sorry. Um... I'm, I am really happy to be part of a church, this church, that says, I don't have to have it all together. I'm a mess. I can say that. I need to admit that I'm still very much on the process of becoming like Christ. Do you feel that? Do you, would you dare say it? I hope you would, because that's the gospel, friends. That's what the church is supposed to be. A place, a hospital, a place of healing, a place of growth, a place where you can honestly say, I have not arrived yet. Amen. I love what Paul says to those who think they've already become perfect. In the first part of 15, he says, now he, he's referring back to the verses that I just finished reading, you, you need to understand that in order to get we're, we're 15. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And he's talking about not having yet arrived and, and so on. He says that, that's the attitude of a mature person. So what's really interesting is that, that Paul is saying that the sign of maturity is to admit that you are imperfect. And in fact, if you think you are perfect, that in itself is an indication that 
you are immature. That's what Paul's basically saying here. And he continues in the last part of 15. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Praise God. Isn't it great that we do not have to act like the conscience and the convictor and the, uh, uh, for everybody else's spiritual progress and, and, and point these things out? Uh, uh, why? Because we've got a God that's very good at this. And it's amazing how often when, when Paul says that, that when people are in error and when they think they're something when they're really not, he has a way of bringing them into a situation or a person into their lives that helps them to see that. I can think of a number of situations in my life that were very significant for me in my spiritual maturity process, and they were painful for me. They were hard for me, but God used a circumstance so that I understood I had growing to do. If you think you're perfect, isn't it true that God will bring somebody into your life to help clarify the issue? Eventually, God will let us know that we are far from perfect, if we ever buy into that illusion. But he continues in 16, only let us hold true to what we have attained. If we think that we are perfect and that nothing else is required, Paul is confident, he is confident that our error will be corrected. God will clear up this mistake for us. It's just a matter of time. So if you're under the illusion of arrived spiritually, I've been a Christian for many years, I, it, it's all good. I, I don't really think I need to change much. I, I'm just sort of waiting for the, the bell to ring kind of thing. Paul would say, you know, God loves you so much, he's not going to let you live long with that delusion. I'm reminded of a story of a man who was speaking at a seminary many years ago. And this man believed that he had gained complete victory over sin in his life. And as he and another Christian were walking along, a young boy uh, tagged along and was bothering this old gentleman. Finally, in irritation, the older man pushed the young lad away and the boy, as I remember the story, stumbled and fell. The older man, noticing that, uh, was ashamed and embarrassed over what he had done and the sin that he, uh, sinful conduct that he had participated in. And he turned to the other gentleman with him and he, and he said, Oh, uh, I never knew that I had that in me. And the other man turned to him and said, Oh, I knew it all the time. <laughs> you know, sometimes we don't have to say anything. God has a way of sending a little boy along to pull on your pants long enough until you realize, oh, I didn't know I had it in me. And then God can teach us. Here's the first application for this. Admit that we're all a mess. That's where we got to start. That we're not where we need to be spiritually. And then admit that you're still very much in process. As long as you're breathing, you're still in process. And if you really want to grow spiritually, it's time to understand what Paul says 
when he says, I'm not saying that I have this all together, that I have got it made. That's he literally, this apostle, this, some people referred to him as the super apostle. And he says, I haven't arrived yet. Another mistake that Paul talks about is uh, that uh, we see in verses 17 to 19. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I often told you, and I'll tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is the belly, and their minds are set on earthly things. You know, when you read this, I'm not sure, most readers are actually not sure who Paul is referring to there. But if you do a little bit of research and you study this a little deeper, you discover there was a group of people that uh, were of concern to the Apostle Paul and to the, the Christian church at the time. Uh, I don't think that you need to remember this name after I've mentioned it, but uh, I think it helps to understand what Paul is saying here. And they were people known as antinomians. And these were people that uh, literally believed were against any law. <laughs> I was thinking of this the other day, and I was thinking, well, that doesn't sound so odd. Uh, that's sort of like civil libertarians, isn't it? <laughs> no, sorry. If you're a civil libertarian, go for it. <laughs> But, but it, it, it sort of has that feel to it. The idea, they felt that there was, should be no law that a Christian needed to follow at all. They believed that because of what Jesus did, we're free from all laws. We're free to live as we please. Well, that uh, may be wishful thinking, but it certainly isn't uh, the gospel. And uh, these people, however, were caught up in this error in their thinking. These people had no problem engaging in uh, immoral behavior and then going to church. Why? Because imputed righteousness. Uh, we've got it all. We don't, well, who cares how we live? That's not, not important. Uh, there's, there's really no, no rule anywhere that, that binds us, that keeps us, uh, that's needed or anything like that. They thought they were believers, but Paul, what does he call them? Enemies of the cross of Christ. This licentiousness, this, this uh, feeling of absolute freedom that you can just do whatever you want, moral or not, and be a Christian. Paul, Paul says, you are actually enemies of the cross of Christ. I guess those of us who live like we please and then come to church on Sunday are antinomians in a way. We fall in that category. Some people don't even feel a, an ounce or even a, a pound of, of guilt about that. I knew a couple in uh, one of my churches that I served that actually took this as a formal position. And uh, eventually they left the church. Why? Because they found out that we actually taught that there were ethical obligations for believers. That, that, that yes, we are saved by grace, but this walk of God, this discipleship, and this growing in faith, it, 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 there is actually, uh, God has uh, gracefully given us the path by which we are to live. 
This is obviously a barrier to spiritual growth, this kind of thinking. Paul is teaching us to avoid two mistakes. To think that we've already arrived or to think that it doesn't matter how we live. So how do we grow spiritually? Assuming that we all agree with those two mistakes that they would prevent us from growing, how do we then achieve this? What, Paul, what help does Paul give us regarding this understanding of how to grow spiritually? Paul gives us two principles that we can begin to apply right now, this week. Uh, the first one is this. We need to focus on the right thing. Do you remember when you started, you learned to drive? I do. I thought I was a pretty good driver which I wasn't. But there was one thing that bothered me in my driving that I was scared of, and that's those concrete barriers that sometimes line streets, and they often are within inches of where the cars must drive past. And you see, I would uh, be scared of them, so I would pay attention to those barriers. And as a result of paying attention to these barriers on each side of my car, guess what? My car would fishtail like a fish. It was just all over the road. And, and, and I, I, I was actually driving dangerously as a consequence of that. I, I, I would have my eyes on the barriers. And therefore, I, I was... I, 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 but the solution to my poor driving was counterintuitive. I had to keep my eyes further down the road if I was supposed to be a good driver, if I would uh, drive safely. I was scared to do this who was going to be watching the barriers? But as soon as I put my eyes down the road, instead of focusing only on those barriers beside my car, I drove a lot better. And I never once hit one of the barriers. And you see, this is the thing that happens sometimes to us in our spiritual lives. We are focusing so heavily on what we shall not be doing. It's tempting to keep our eyes on the barriers in order to grow spiritually. But listen to what Paul says in 13 and 14. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it, made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal. You don't look back and move forward. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ in Christ Jesus. The key to spiritual growth isn't watching the barriers. It isn't to focus on the mechanics of living the spiritual life. It's to focus on Jesus. Amen. When you keep our eyes on Jesus and strain toward pleasing him, it begins to fit in, into our We find our place. We find that things fall off of our life when we focus our, our, dedicate our lives and make it our goal to know Jesus and to be more like him. The metaphor God, Paul uses here is, of, of straining towards the goal is either an athletic one or it could have been a military one. It really doesn't matter. It's the same point. And what he's saying is that Jesus, we need to keep our focus on Christ for our, if we want our lives to be like Christ. 
Here's what we should do. Remind ourselves that the goal every day when we wake up is not to read more verses of Scripture. It is not to pray longer periods of time. Although these are wonderful things as goals for your life and keep them up. I am not discouraging you from those practices. But the goal that we should wake up every morning and have a clear focus for ourselves is how will I this day please Jesus? That is what my prayer should be every day. The goal is to win the prize. That's how you win the prize, Paul says. And that's how, by pursuing Christ. If you want to grow, set your eyes on Jesus daily. And a lot of the other things will begin to fall away. Keep your eyes on Jesus. The second thing that Paul says is that we need to remember who we are. I learned that many years ago when I lived in Brandon, uh, my family and I, every year the Royal Winter Fair would come to Brandon. That's an agricultural fair. Now, many people in Brandon probably had some relationship to farm and all that. Our family did not, not at all. But we loved going to the Royal Winter Fair. It was plunked down into the middle of the city. We only had to drive a few blocks to get there. This was sort of a strange kind of uh, situation when you would go to the, ro- the, the fair. Uh, it was in the middle of the city. You could now interact with smelly cows and horses and hay and sheep and carcasses and everything you can think of that's related to farming and agriculture right in the middle of the city where we were living. And uh, it was always a lot of fun going there and spending time there. But one of the things that made it so enjoyable was how removed from our daily life it was. Why do I say that? It felt uh, like a different world, but as much as we enjoyed it, I knew that at the end of the day, we would get into our cars, we would drive a few blocks away, and we'd be in the middle of suburbia again. It was a great experience, but I had no temptation to buy a tractor or a combine. Sorry, guys, to sell that stuff. Um, It was fun visiting, but it wasn't my home. Look at 20 and 21. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even so, even to subject all things to himself. He also says in 127, Paul says, But whatever happens to, you, to me, you must live in a manner worthy of the good news of Christ as what? As citizens of heaven. That is, that is who we are. we are. We are not earth, permanent earth dwellers. We are here on a temporary basis. You might not remember what I said in the first sermon in this series about Philippi, that it was a uh, it was a city that was clearly within what is known as the age of city states. That means that that the, the citizens of the city were not citizens of a country. They actually were because the city state was belonged to Rome. They were Roman citizens living there and. Uh, Philippi was a Roman colony, and most of the people who lived there had the privilege that others did not have. They weren't citizens, uh, they weren't citizens of Philippi, they were citizens of Rome. 
and uh, with that came many privileges and responsibilities that uh, were brought along with actually having a citizenship way far away in Rome. But it was of great benefit to them that they had it. One of the keys to growing spiritually is to understand that we're not citizens here. We're citizens somewhere else that is much better, that is going to last much longer, and it is a place that is truly, really home. When we think about this regularly, it changes our perspective. We're only staying here temporarily. Whatever the problem we're going through, it is a temporary problem. The temptation that seems to defeat us is a temporary thing. And there's going to be a permanent solution to all of these things. And one day we are going to be brought into the presence of God and we are going to be together with Him in that heavenly city. And this is where our citizenship exists right now. My brother and I used to sleep in the same room. Uh, he is a deep thinker, at least at night. In the darkness, he'd call over to me, Earl. What do you think heaven is like? And I groggily sort of lifted my head off a pillow and I said, well... I think heaven's a place where people don't ask questions while you are trying to sleep. <laughs> but my brother was onto something. If we're going to put our minds on heaven, we're going to put our focus on Christ, and we're going to put our minds on where our citizenship truly is, it will make a world of a difference in our present life. And the things of this world, like Paul says that these uh, antinomians were doing, is they, their minds were in the flesh all the time. Their minds was in this worldly system, this sinful, Satan-controlled system. And when we put our thoughts on Jesus and our concentration on heaven and the place on the abode of those who are followers of God, it changes us now. In Philippians 4, 1, sir, is a good way to close this whole thing off. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. My beloved. If you want to press forward in your spiritual life, I'd encourage you to think about pray. Dear God, I come to you this morning, and with all the earnestness that I have, I want to plead with you that truth would win out over error, that the blessedness of our relationship with you would outshine the temporary glitter of this sinful world. And I here pray, Lord God, that we would uh, seek you with all of our hearts, that we would live for you as we can. And if we are not, we would seek only to know you better because you went through every temptation that is common to man. 
and you did not sin, and therefore you tell us we can come boldly before your throne of grace and receive help in our time of need. We need you right now, dear Lord. Help us. Help us.